We have two scripture readings that I will be um, reading today. The first from Romans 12, 3 through 8, and then the second, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. So beginning with Romans 12, 3 through 8. <clears throat> For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And now 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you all today. Um, we're in Ephesians. Ephesians is six chapters, and uh, we're going through it, Lord willing, over the span of 12 weeks at a pretty good clip. And so I have a confession to make to you. We're, you know, we're not ringing each passage for all that's in there. Uh, we're not exploring, plumbing the depths of it. We are just making some remarks on a few salient points that I think wise for the church to reflect upon. And so I've got to tell you, uh, in, in my own preparation, um, there's a bit of a selectivity process because I can't share with you everything that I might like to. And even then, we'd just be scratching the surface of the, uh, of the treasures of these precious and magnificent promises. But uh, talk with... Talk is cheap. Uh, you know, you don't have to be in the church to know that. The culture at large knows that, right? They, they say um, in sports or other aspects of life in the world, if you're going to talk the talk, then what do you have to do? That's right. They two go together. Talk without the walk is, is hollow. It's maybe hypocrisy, right, if you don't back up the talk with the walk. And conversely, the walk without the talk uh, is insufficient. Uh, there's an old adage, I think it was St. Francis of Assisi, I'm not sure, was attributed with saying, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. 
Um, I get that. I mean, that means that your walk, you know, should line up, right? Your, your walk should match the talk. I get that, but I'm not sure that tells the whole story, right? Because Jesus, his life was pretty good last time I checked, and he went about preaching the gospel. He went about teaching about the kingdom of God. So, you, you know, some of us have this attitude, oh, I just witnessed by my life, you know. Well, your life isn't that good. <laughs> Neither is mine. Uh, it's the walk and the talk that must go together. And so here in this marvelous book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are, I don't know why I'm doing that with my fingers. The first three chapters are about positional truth, and the second half of the book is about practical truth. We move from the positional to the practical here. And I've entitled this series, as you've probably heard by now, Walk This Way. It is not an homage to Aerosmith. It is rather uh, indicatory of the book of Ephesians using the word walk eight times. Now, I kind of drove myself a little crazy this past week as I was in the study because I was reading it through and I could only find seven. I was going, where did I get eight? Did I mess up, you know? And... uh, the American Standard has eight. More importantly, the Greek text has eight uses of the word peripateo, which is to, to move about, to walk. It really means to conduct your life. Uh, so there are eight uses. We've only seen two of them so far. In the next uh, two chapters, I think we're going to see at least five more. So, talked about how how not to walk, and how instead we ought to walk, which is in a manner worthy. So today, our um, subtitle for the message is The Worthy Walk. So right now, I am going to read, we're going to look at verses 1 through 16 today. Um, Right now, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, and hopefully later I'll remember to read 11 to 16. If not, somebody throws something at me. Okay, we are in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 now. Here are the first 10 verses. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
Lord, we are reminded that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word endures forever. And Lord, as we seek your face together uh, this morning, we have an interest in the gospel. We have an interest in following our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as our time constraints uh, kind of limit our study a little bit this morning, uh, and I honestly, as interim pastor here, have made some selective choices to draw further attention to some and others. I pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, lead and guide and direct us in this process, that you might apply your word to our hearts and minds, that we might indeed uh, live in manners worthy of our calling in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. A manner worthy. Uh, It doesn't mean we're trying to pay God back or anything like that. You can't do that. We don't earn our salvation, of course. We know that. So a manner worthy means one that is appropriate. It's fitting. It's suitable. It's in keeping with the one who names Christ. I mean, maybe you've had that kind of uh, conversation with, I don't know, a friend, a fellow student, uh, a co-worker, whomever, and at one point... In the course of casual conversation, they mention, oh yeah, you know, I'm a Christian. And then you're talking about some other things and they go on to tell you about their life or their plans and, and, and how they're living. And the two don't seem to match up. Uh, they, they just, it, what they're now expressing doesn't seem to be in keeping with that which they said earlier. That they're a believer. In fact, you kind of raise an eyebrow. You go, huh, I thought you just told me that you're a Christian, and yet you're saying you're involved in this or that. So a man are worthy, it's appropriate, it's fitting, it's suitable. Um, this is a phrase that is used five times by the Apostle Paul in his writings, four times in this same sort of context about your manner of life being in keeping with uh, the life of Jesus and the faith of one who professes Christ. Um, if you're a jotter, I'm going to jot you the address, or give you the address for three to jot right quick. Uh, Philippians 1.27, I'm going to read that one. Colossians 1.10, that's the benediction at the end of the service today. Uh, and then 1 Thessalonians 2.12. So Philippians 1.27, here it comes. Uh, Colossians 1.10, or benediction. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 are the other instances in which Paul writes about this worthy walk. From Philippians, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So there in one power-packed little verse, Paul elsewhere describes this worthy walk as one that is marked uh, by unity and by teamwork, uh, if you will. All right? So, uh, worthy in the original language gives us, from the Greek, it gives us our, later our English word axis which has to do with being symmetrical, 
You might think of the tilt of the earth on its axis kind of rotating around and, you know, our lives should revolve around Christ. And to that end, I've got two illustrations for you this morning about that. And I wonder whether you would think that your life might reflect more the first or the second. Uh, the, the, the first one goes something like this. You know, there's sort of different areas of your life, different areas of your life. Um, you know, it's kind of, I, I call this one the slice of the pie Christian, okay? Not rocket science here. Slice in the pie Christian, and uh, you know, you've got your job, uh, uh, you've got your, your love life, you know, whether that's your dating life or your marriage or, or what have you. You've got your finances, and, uh, and, and then you have your relationship with, with Christ, um, your relationship with the Lord and your church involving you say, hey, hey, you know, I'm, I'm really involved. I mean, you know, I come to Sunday school or I go Wednesday nights or, or, or whatever. And so there are these different areas of your life. We could come up with some more recreation uh, on and on. I'm not going to list anymore. But you get the idea. The slice of the pie Christian, their concept of the Christian life is sort of like this, um, that walking with Christ is one area of their life but in terms of how much that affects these other areas of their life. That's why sometimes you work with a boss, maybe, and your boss is a professing Christian, and he's the worst tyrant that you've ever been around in your life. And you're thinking, what does this have to do with this? And maybe you have good reason uh, for that. If instead we live our lives a little differently not as the slice in the pie Christian, but if we have a different understanding of the faith and we put Christ at the center of our lives, if that instead is our approach to life, that, you know, the most important relationship, the most important person in my whole life is my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it very much affects how I conduct myself on the job. And as we go along in Ephesians, by the time we get to uh, the beginning of chapter 6, we're going to talk about Christians at work, Christians in the marketplace, and how it should affect our conduct on the job. And if our relationship with Christ is of primary importance and central concern in our lives, then of, of course it's going to affect the way we conduct ourselves in our romantic relationships, in, in our marriage, our use of, of money. Um, I mentioned earlier, you know, recreation, not just playing sports, but maybe, maybe I should call it, uh, how about in today's on-demand world, uh, a- a- entertainment. It's going to affect the choices that we make. And so ask yourself this question. Am I a, a slice-in-the-pie Christian or am I a Christ-centered Christian? I think it's something for us to think about. So as we continue on with this idea about a manner worthy, uh, letter A in your outline, we've got some primary points to look at here. First is eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit and of the faith. Eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit and of the faith. Perhaps you noticed in the reading 
that the word one, one Lord, one faith, all that, it's mentioned seven times in this passage. There's nowhere else that I, I think of that it's used so much in Scripture other than maybe John 17 by Jesus himself. The high priestly prayer, you know, where he prays about that they may be one even as we are one. And so we need to eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit and of the faith. To eagerly maintain it means to hold it firmly, to be diligent about it, to, to be on guard and to exert effort and work speedily. Relationships take some work. If you think that your marriage is going to just sort of improve by osmosis without attending to it, you're kidding yourself. You don't just kind of fall into a good marriage. You make time for one another. You invest in it uh, resources of time and energy and attention. And maybe you bring in other resources. You, you go on a vacation together to intentionally have, have time. Or you read a book together or go to a, a marriage conference or retreat. Something like that. So relationships, and not only the marriage one, all of them. Relationships in the life of the church take time and work. Um, it's ironic to me that the writer of Ephesians, Paul, who reminds us, uh, his original audience, and we too, uh, that he is a prisoner. So the man who is in bonds reminds us of the bond of the Spirit. In Presbyterian circles, we sometimes refer to the peace and purity of the church. Um, and this is in primarily two areas. One would be relationships, and the second would be doctrine. Purity and peace in our relationships, the way we relate to one another, no, no immorality and not being argumentative, uh, and the doctrine, the teaching of the church as well that it would be sound, healthy, faithful, biblical doctrine, and that we wouldn't wrangle about words, that we wouldn't argue about some of the fine points and the essentials, unity, and, and everything, charity. That's the EPC motto. And charity, they don't mean handouts. Charity, the old word for love. Think about uh, Philippians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul names names. I urge Euodia and Syntyche to get along in the Lord. And I ask you, uh, fellow, my, my fellow servant or faithful brother, something like that, to help them get along. These, these two women are in the church there at Philippi, along with people like Lydia and her family, along with the Philippian jailer, you know, the town sheriff and his family, and here this letter is addressed to them and it calls them out publicly and it asks them to work through their differences and he brings in a third party, a mediator, and an arbiter to effect conciliation between the parties. It takes some effort, it takes some work to eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit and of the faith. With regard to the one faith, just a couple of passing remarks. Uh, one faith, one hope. Again, the Christian hope is not, you know, wishful thinking. I often say it's confident expectation. 
you know, spring training is going on with baseball, and I used to read Sports Illustrated uh, cover to cover almost every week, and now I never really read it anymore. But my favorite issue of the whole year is the baseball preview issue because hope springs eternal, and every year my team, you know, has a shot. But that's wishful thinking. You have no idea. That's what's interesting about sports, right? I was talking with a friend about this the other day, that if you watch a, a drama, a TV show, you're thinking along with a writer. But if you watch live sports, you don't know the outcome. Nobody knows the outcome. I mean, March Madness, St. Peter's, go Peacocks, right? Uh, you, you just don't know what's going to happen. But Christian hope is confident expectation. I've read the book. I know how it comes out. God wins, and I'm on the winning team. And you can be, too, by placing your trust in Christ. One faith, one hope, uh, one Lord, of course, one baptism. The second baptism is mentioned in the church. Christians want to get to fighting. They want to talk about how much water to use and on whom. And although water is connected to the use of baptism many times in the New Testament, there are a number of instances where it has nothing to do with water, And in all of the mentions of baptism in the New Testament, they ultimately have to do with identification with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Even the ones that are talking about water. It's identification with the person of Christ. Be a Christ-centered Christian, not a slice-in-the-pie Christian. If you want to be immersed in something, don't focus on the water so much as focusing on immersing yourself in the word of God and with Jesus Christ. One Father who is in all, over all, and through all. I only have time for a quick remark on this. Who is all? This is not teaching universalism. Universalism, all dogs go to heaven. That everybody gets to go no matter what they believe or how they live their life. That's not what the word all means here. Uh, We interpret Scripture with Scripture, and in verse 7, it talks about each one of us. So who are the all? You know, I'm speaking to you all today. It's those of us here, not everybody in the whole world. In the same sense, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, when he talks about one Father of all who's in all and through all, he doesn't mean every man, woman, and child on the face of the planet. He means all those who are in Christ, all those who have union with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by faith. That's what all means in this context. And that's all I have time to remark about that. Okay, uh, point two, discover your spiritual gifts. Discover your spiritual gifts. Uh, Brian already read for us from the two primary passages in the New Testament, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, that talk about spiritual gifts. There's at least one other place. I know in 1 Peter, it kind of gives two broad categories. 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11, uh, it it says, "If if you speak, speak as it were the very words of God. And if you serve, serve with the energy that God provides. So there's a rubric, there's two very broad categories, the 
public gift and maybe the behind-the-scenes gift. We were talking about this in the uh, adult education hour that precedes, and, and it was saying that sometimes people have a wrong idea about spiritual gifts in the life of the church. They think that what I do is spiritual, but what the deacons do is solely practical. See, the deacons do the dirty work. They scurry around setting up for for meals and luncheons and such like that in the life of the church so that Pastor Tom and Pastor Nick can, can do the, the spiritual work of the church. According to 1 Peter 4, that's not the case at all. It's all spiritual work. The one who speaks better not be just, you know, doing three points in a poem. You know, you ever go to church and you, you listen to somebody, they read a scripture, and then they proceed to talk about all kinds of stuff, and you wonder, what do they have to do with the Bible? So the one who speaks, the one who exercises teaching gifts in public, better speak, as it were, the oracles, the very words of God. But, make no mistake about it, the one who serves tables, a table waiter, the one who kicks up dust behind the scenes, they better do so not with their own strength, but with the power and energy that God supplies from his spirit. They're both spiritual broad categories. Um, Review on your own the 12s, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and those lists of spiritual gifts. Um, Each, uh, a couple of points just to throw out there briefly about spiritual gifts. Every Christian has one or more spiritual gifts, and the best way to learn them is not by taking a written test. Sometimes those are floated and circulated in the church. There's some good ones. There's some not as good ones. Uh, if you really want one, I'll find you a good one. I have a friend who recommends one, and I'll find that, and I'll get it for you. But that's not the best way to learn what your spiritual gift is. The best way to learn what your spiritual gift is is by getting involved in ministry. It's by doing different stuff in the life of the church finding out what you have supernatural energy or strength for, and more importantly, well, I'd add to that, you might actually enjoy what you're doing. Can you imagine that? Presbyterians actually enjoying what they're doing. Um, And and moreover, the body of Christ confirming back to you, wow, I really see you being merciful to our people behind the scenes. I see how you go and visit people in their times of distress and you care for them and they you help them out or wow the way that you led our small group i'd like to see you do some more of that it's that's how you learn your spiritual gifts it's not by taking a written test do stuff try stuff on for size in the life of the church and if you don't know what to do come ask me or ask your elders go to them grab a couple of them and say hey what can i do to get involved in the life of the church. Where can I serve? I'd like to dis- discover my spiritual gift. I tell you, I'm shocked. As I've had the opportunity to go and minister in various churches, I'm sometimes shocked by how few believers seem to have any idea of their spiritual gift. Some of them have been in the church their whole lives, and they have no clue what their spiritual gifts are. Every believer has at least one. Now, now why is that, that that people don't know. I, I don't know. One thought I have is the word for the spiritual gift or graces of the Lord, which is the best way to understand it, graces from God, is charismata. And that's where we get 
uh, charismatic, and you know, we Presbyterian, we're not the charismaniacs, right? Okay. Uh, and so sometimes I think we move so far away from that that we don't have anything to do with spiritual gifts. And at the very first verse of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says there, I do not want you to be uninformed about spiritual gifts. I don't want you to be ignorant. Well, how do you find out? You, you can take one of those written tests. Sometimes they give some indication. I've taken several over the years, I suppose. Get involved in ministry. You get my drift here. Well, by the way, when the scriptures say that he gave gifts, that Jesus gave gifts, what is that talking about? Again, only time for a brief comment. And um, in the ancient world, when a conquering war hero, a military general or something like that would proceed like back into Rome, they would lead a... Um, they would leave captives, right? They'd leave their prisoners of war behind them. They'd come in victoriously with the soldiers, uh, making display over them and, you know, roses or whatever. I don't know, some kind of flowers. I don't know if they had roses in Rome. But anyway, flowers are given, you know, wreaths and all that kind of stuff and acclaim and applause and, and such. Today, we might liken that to uh, parades. My, my kids were in marching band coming up and We'd go to parades, and there was this one in this little town, um, Memorial Day Parade. And, you know, on the side, the people who are going down through the parade, they, they'd throw out candy. They'd throw out gifts, right? And the little kids would be excited about, get, so would I, about getting candy. And the curb and gutter there, the streets of Yardley Borough in Pennsylvania. And that, it is funny because it pales. I mean, w w what kind of parades do we have now? Super Bowl Parade. You got Tom Brady on a, on a boat. They're doing a parade of boats in Tampa Bay and, ta you know, getting excoriated for tossing the, the trophy around. And, and what do you get? What are the gifts given out by the players, the magnanimous gestures of the players there? Ah, here's a can of cheap beer. You know, and that's the best you got. Now, now if they're throwing out bundles of, you know, $10,000 at a time, now you might get my interest that the heroes, the champions, and their victory parade give gifts. Well, Jesus is the victor. Jesus has overcome death, sin, and hell. Jesus has overcome the world, and he gives gifts. And it's not penny-ante junk. He gives spiritual graces to his church. You know, in New York City, there's a place called um, the Canyon of Heroes. You can actually walk this. Has anybody seen the Canyon of Heroes? Nobody. Has anybody seen the Hollywood Walk of Fame? You have. Well, how about that? And even Dad hasn't. That's interesting. Um, so if, if you go to Hollywood, right, they've got the stars in the sidewalk. Well, they have a similar thing in New York City. For all the ticker tape parades, what do you get? You get confetti dropped from buildings. It's called the Canyon of Heroes because it's with all the skyscrapers. It's like going through a canyon, and it's the heroes because it's, you know, whatever team won the local team won the Super Bowl or what have you. Anyway, you get the drift there. So what are some of the gifts that he gives? Point three in your outline. Oh, I better read the end of the passage. That might be a good idea. We're in Ephesians. We're in chapter four. We pick up now at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds up, it builds itself up in love. Grow up, says it twice in the passage, verses 15 and 16, grow up into maturity with each part working properly. To grow up, uh, the word that's employed in the Greek New Testament there gives us our word oxen, not like you know, cattle or whatever, oxen, but A-U-X-I-N, you remember that? Eighth grade biology, oxen is the stuff in plants that makes the sunflowers bend towards the sun. That's what oxen is. Well, in the same way, you and I need to grow up and follow the sun, not the S-U-N, but the S-O-N. We grow up into maturity, verse 13, that means completion, that means reaching the goal, although, of course, we're all in process, right? Philippians 1, 6, confident of this very thing, he who began a good work in you will continue it, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. When is that? That's his return. With each part working properly. Church is not intended to be a spectator sport. You've perhaps heard the definition of a football game. 60,000 people badly in need of exercise watching 22 young men badly in need of rest. And sometimes that's what it's like in the church, right? We talk about the 80-20 principle, that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. And I would put it to you that it really ought not be that way, that everybody has an interest in the church, and everybody has a role, and everybody has received one or more spiritual gifts. So what are the gifts that God has given? He's given spiritual gifts, spiritual graces, where you are endued with power from on high to fulfill a role or task in the body of Christ. And what what other gifts has he given in the church? He's given the, the gift of the apostles and the prophets that form the foundation of the church. So he's given officers to the church, extraordinary and ordinary and I'm in the ordinary camp, personally, and what I do. The extraordinary offices of the church are apostle and prophet in the first century sense, in the sense of being an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, in the sense of the formation of the New Testament letters as the word of God and the Holy Spirit were going forth in the first century. But there are ordinary, continuing, ongoing offices in the church, And here in Ephesians 4, verse 12, it mentions pastor-teacher. Depending what translation you're reading, it might say the shepherds and teachers and sound like two groupings, but most scholars agree because of the word in the original language that it's one office. It's hyphenated, pastor-teacher. As pastor, you protect and you provide. And as teacher, you're bringing the word of God to the people. 
your equipping, verse 12. It's the only place this word is used in the Greek New Testament. Equipping, it means preparing, adjusting so that the individual parts work together in the correct order, fulfilling its designed purpose. Well, who, who gets to be equipped? The saints. You've heard me say most every week since I've been here, saints are holy ones. They are people whose lives are being transformed by their union and identification with Jesus Christ. Another definition that one commentator uses for saints is a society of pardoned rebels. And that's what we are. We are pardoned rebels. We are people who have committed, as Sproul puts it, cosmic treason, sin against God, which is an affront to his holiness, an affront, an insult to his nature. But we are forgiven in the beloved. We're forgiven through his one and only sending of his son, Jesus Christ, into this world to save sinners. Uh, Regarding preaching, Sinclair Ferguson says, its goal is not merely educational, but transformational. That's the goal of preaching. So when you have somebody that fills the pulpit here, it shouldn't be just like reading a commentary. It shouldn't be them delivering a theological treatise every week. That's, both of those maybe have some bearing on what happens in the pulpit, but here to unfold the word of God, to build you up in the faith, to help teach and equip you so that your life is transformed by the gospel of Christ. So our takeaways this morning, letter B in your outline. Head, heart, hand is our rubric. Uh, Head, know that Christ has both ascended and descended. And again, in the interest of time, this this point right here is worth a whole sermon, and I'm going to just make a couple of comments. Uh, You need to know, verses 8 through 10, that Christ has both ascended and descended. Now, this is quoting from a psalm. Read Psalm 68. It's quoting verse 18 of that psalm. There's a homework assignment for you. Read Psalm 68 about a conquering hero coming back and proclaiming victory and giving gifts. Read that in Psalm 68. But Christ has both ascended and descended. Let's talk about him in order. Descended. He is descended to earth. His state of humiliation. Uh, When we recite the creed together, we say that he descended into hell. And again, now we do need maybe to do some theology and read some commentaries and such. I'll give you my short take on my best understanding of what that means. He descended into hell. Is that he tasted for us the hellish agonies of death on the cross. He did that for you and for me to pay for our sins once for all, to satisfy divine justice. That's his descent, his state of humiliation, and then his state of exaltation is his resurrection from the dead, his ascent back into heaven. And by the way, all this harkens to several places in Scripture. You might sing in Sunday school or your children's storybook Bible. You're reading the Bible in the home, and you're singing about Jacob's ladder. We are climbing Jacob's ladder. That's Genesis 28. 
Uh, also, you look at John chapter 1, the very last verse in John chapter 1, the calling of Nathaniel, where Jesus himself talks about ascending and descending. He says something similar in John 3, I think it's at verse 31. Um, ascending and descending of the Son of Man. Only Christ has done this and gone before God. In order that he might fill all things. Verse 10, he might fulfill all things. So head, know that Christ has both ascended and descended to save us. We're saved not only by his state of humiliation and his death on the cross, we're saved also by his triumphant resurrection, ascension back to the right hand of the Father, his coronation being given the name that is above every name. And he, he gives gifts, he distributes gifts to the church, as we've said. Heart, to be, well, right out of the passage here, be humble, gentle, patient, and loving. Humble, gentle, patient, and loving. Uh, humble, that's lowliness of mind. And one writer or another has been attributed, I don't care who said it, best definition I've ever heard of humility, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. You get the difference? It's not thinking less of yourself, poor self-image. It's thinking of yourself less. It's, it's instead of being self-absorbed, you're Christ-centered. That's humility. Uh, gentle. Uh, wasn't it uh, George H.W. Bush who got kind of mocked for saying that America, we need to be a kinder, gentler nation, and people thought they laughed at him uh, and his manner. By the way, he was a stud. He played baseball. He played first base or pitcher at Yale uh, back in the day. And, and people kind of his, his demeanor, they kind of mocked his demeanor, and he said words like gentle and kind from the office of the most powerful man on earth. Don't mistake meekness for weakness. Gentleness is not a bad thing. Gentleness is gentle strength. It's strength under restraint. It's strength under control. Meekness is not weakness. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul speaks of the meekness of Christ. Christ, the one who could have called down legions of angels to fight for him, to free him, went on the cross. He didn't do that. It's power under control. A lot of people think that, you know, if you walk with Jesus back in the day as a disciple, it meant you were skipping through the meadows, holding hands and braiding daisy chains with the bunnies. And they think that's what Jesus was like. Turn the other cheek. Jesus meek and mild. But Jesus is the epitome of masculinity and of strength and of a mature man. Be humble, be gentle, be, be patient. To be patient is long-suffering, not quick-tempered. To be slow to anger, loving, bearing with one another, putting up with one another like you all are doing with me, enduring annoyances. Love doesn't take into account easily a wrong suffered. Not childish. I, won't, I don't even have time to speak to that. All right, underhand. You can skip the first point. Praise God and give him glory. I made a mistake. I just left that in there from last week. Of course, if you want to be a good Presbyterian, just talk about glorifying God, right? 
correct answers as a Presbyterian. You know, you're in church, so the answer is always Jesus. You're a Presbyterian, so you just say, oh, it's for the glory of God. And people go, oh, wow, he's a great Presbyterian. Um, But what do we do? We speak the truth in love, verse 15. We speak the truth in love. There's that adage even outside the church. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. And I would add to that why. And sometimes, as one source I consulted says, it includes spirit-led confrontation where it is vital to tell the truth so that others can live in God's reality rather than personal illusion. There's warning in this passage we didn't even have time to speak to about trickery and deceit. And what we need to do, we need to speak the truth in love. It involves a positive component and a negative. The positive is encouragement. Is there anybody out there who would raise your hand and say, I don't need any more encouragement. I'm, I've been so encouraged. I'm just, I'm just, please, please don't say anything nice. I mean, I'm just, encouragement, but then correction. There's a book called Crucial Conversations. You know, nobody ever says, I really enjoy conflict. You know, you're in a job interview. How, how, do, you feel, how do you deal with conflict? Oh, I really enjoy it. I, I, I seek it. Uh, nobody says that. But that's part in the church is speaking the truth and love. All right. That's all we're going to do for now. The worthy walk is marked by gentle strength and humility that comes from God. The worthy walk demonstrates urgent concern for unity in Christ. The worthy walk moves towards maturity by learning to speak the truth in love. And love is always costly. Let's pray. Lord, help us to know the truth, to speak the truth with one another, and to live the truth in our lives as by the power of your Spirit we seek to walk in manners worthy of our calling in Christ, our great Savior, we pray in his name. Amen.